Mark 1. Uh, the Lord has not allowed me to leave Mark 1 this week. I have tried many, many times to leave Mark 1, and I just can't. It, it, Mark is the, in my opinion, um, John is my favorite gospel, but of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, Mark is my absolute favorite, and it's not because it's the shortest. Um, Mark has this, so Mark did ministry with Paul, the apostle Paul, and so a lot of Paul's teachings line up with Mark because they did ministry together. It lines up with, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the whole Bible, but um, the message that Mark writes through recounting Jesus and the kingdom and all that stuff being established and how Paul teaches, it's just like a puzzle piece fits right together. And so I love Mark because you can typically trace things in the book of Mark back to something that Paul taught in all of his writings. And, um, and it's, it creates this kind of um, cohesive piece of theology. So uh, anyway, I'm going to read a little bit. I don't think I'm going to read everything that I wrote down for this week. Um, but I do want to read a couple of things just to get us um, set up for Mark 1. And then we'll go to Mark 1. Um, so... This is all review, so let me just do this for people who maybe haven't been here in the past, just to get us all in the same playing field before we go to Mark 1. The Bible is the story of how Yahweh the Creator was going to put creation to rights, primarily in and through Jesus, and then His image bearers, human beings. The Old Testament gives us a glimpse into how off things go when we try to do things apart from our Creator. That's the whole New Testament. The New Testament gives us a glimpse into the God who is love, 1 John, and his plan to redeem and restore that which was lost through Jesus, the Son of God, becoming flesh itself, fulfilling the law on our behalf, and becoming the atonement for sins past, present, and future. Y'all with me? Like I said, I'll review. With this... God could finally begin his original project, his kingdom subduing the earth through his image bearers until, as Revelation 11 says, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Go back to Genesis, the book of Genesis. Before the fall, Adam and Eve's call was to be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. When sin entered the picture, their calling went way off. Not that it changed, but now they were living in a different reality and gave away all of the authority to do what they were originally called to do. Jesus came, gave them back their position that they had in Genesis 1, or our position we had in Genesis 1, so that he could restart the original goal, which was be fruitful, evangelism, and multiply and subdue the earth. With me? Okay. But what does this mean for our everyday lives? This is what I'm going to talk about today. We talk a lot about the big picture kingdom I want to get a little specific today. So what does this mean for our everyday lives? What does this mean for our legacy and the world around us? In short, this means hope. From the story of Adam in Genesis to the return of Jesus in Revelation and everything in between, the Bible can be described in the radicalness of hope. A amen. Amen. There is hope for us, hope for our families, our city, our nation, and ultimately the Greek word cosmos or all of creation. We have been given his image back 
to be a two-way mirror mirroring the image of God into the earth and casting that image back in worship to Yahweh himself. You being an image bearer is, is twofold. It's to bear the image into the earth, and then it's to bear the image back to God in worship. So when we're worshiping, we're taking the image-bearing capacity and mirroring it back to God in worship. So there's this divine back and forth. In fact, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew word, um, when, when a lot of the Old Testament prophets and writers are describing the relationship between the Trinity, the word that is used is the Hebrew word, which means to twirl or to dance. So when it's describing the unity and how the Trinity operates in each other, it's a twirl. It's a back and forth rhythm. And so us as create creatures, excuse me, that have been created by a creator to bear the image of God into creation and back to the creator, when we're worshiping, we're doing both at the same time. Which is why worship is unbelievable, because as the words are leaving our mouths, we're setting creation on the right course by our words and by our worship, ultimately by our image. But at the same time as we're doing that, we're also sending that image back to God in worship, which creates this dance back and forth where creation, standing on tiptoe waiting for the manifestation of the sons and daughters of God, is being brought into alignment with God, who is waiting for creation to be brought back into its alignment with its original design. I know it's a lot, but y'all with me? Okay, so this means hope. In one act of disobedience, excuse me, if one act of disobedience in Adam caused the entire human race to fall, how much more did one act of the last Adam of obedience bring freedom and hope? That's how Paul, uh, Paul puts it in the book of Romans. Our work or job as ambassadors of heaven in the earth is threefold, okay? So let me just give you these real quick, and we'll jump into Mark 1. It's threefold, though this is only broad. It's devotion, number one, primarily, a walk in the cool of the day. You, God, in the cool of the day on a daily basis, that is your primary purpose in the entire world. Somebody says, what's your calling? The first thing that any of us should say is, me and him in the cool of the day. Because I can preach the best message on planet Earth, the best message, have the best translation and the best notes. But without the walk in the cool of the day, it means nothing. Let's put it like this. Paul says, if I speak with tongues of angels but don't love, I have nothing. If I have faith that I can move a mountain, speak to a mountain, tell it to jump into the sea, and it does, and know the mysteries of everything, and know all knowledge, but I don't have love, I have nothing. First John says, God is love. Right? Okay. So, devotion is your primary calling. That is the fuel that fuels everything. You don't have devotion, I don't care what you're doing, on what grand of a level, it means nothing. So, I hear that and feel the weight fall off. Right? Because I can't produce anything on my own. Through devotion, I can produce whatever the Lord wants me to produce. So there's no weight on me. I just enjoy the pleasure of his company. And through that, it gives birth to a tree that could be any calling that he wants it to be. 
But my primary goal is to be a tree planted by living water that bears fruit in every season. Okay, number one, devotion. Number two, being discipled. I got a lot of notes on this, but I'm not going to hit them today. Being discipled, which is allowing the body, so spiritual fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, to fan the flame within and make sure that you or I aren't shifting to the right or to the left. Okay, so our work or job as ambassadors of heaven, threefold, it's devotion, it's being discipled, okay? So you take the walk in the cool today and you bring it into the corporate setting where together we're spurring each other on and iron sharpening iron if you want to use that. So if I'm in a place where my devotion is falling, then Alex can step in and say, hey man, this isn't what you were designed for and get me back on track. It's huge. So the idea that floats around culture today that the church isn't a building, it's the people, I totally agree. I totally agree. However, it starts in the building, to be clear. You know what I'm saying? When you leave this building, are you the church? Absolutely. But if you never step foot in the body, by definition, you cannot call yourself a church. The church, Jesus used, I taught this last week, the ecclesia is a governmental body. So if you take, I don't know, I can't think of, I, I don't even know what our congressperson is. Does anybody know that? The John, John something? I have no idea. Let's say Nancy Pelosi. Everybody, I know, like, I'm not, like, y'all, it's the first person I can think of. Mitch McConnell, whatever you want to use. I don't, I don't care. Somebody in Congress, all right? If you, if you take them, pull them out of Congress and say, all right, now I want you to do everything you possibly can do on your own, guess what they're going to do? Nothing, right? Because alone, they can't govern. Alone, they can't make laws. They can't make decrees. They can't do any of that stuff. When they come into the body and the governmental body together makes decrees, they then can leave that governmental body and enact those decrees wherever they came from. But it starts in the body together, leveraging the authority that Yahweh has given us and the image that Yahweh has given us back into the culture. So we come here to get fueled up, to go out there, to primarily be in devotion, but then out of being devotion to take what was in here out there. So it, so it spread. Jesus says like this, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. I've been teaching this. Start small, but then grows until it's the biggest tree and uh, birds come and put their nest in it in its branches. Okay? Matthew 13. It starts small. What is the mustard seed in Colombia? So it's Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, and then Jesus ascends and he gives the church gifts, Ephesians says, and the gifts he gives the church are apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists, and preachers. And those fivefold ministries are meant to operate until the body is brought into the perfect knowledge of the Son of God. But, so that starts here. And then we can go be the church outside all we want. But that, that idea today, really because they don't like the music that's being played, or they don't like the preacher, or they don't like the people, or all that stuff, we're not called to like the people or the, or the message or the music or anything like that. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to build each other up into the perfect knowledge of the Son of God, which is exactly why the message of unity is imperative through the Holy Spirit, the spirit of unity. Imperative. Why? Because united, I can go to Alex, just use you because you're in front of me. I can go to Alex and say, hey, man, this ain't what you're designed for. And he's not going to say, fine, then I'm not going to your church anymore. 
Because this is what we do. I can go to Alex and say that, and because we're unified, he can say, man, I appreciate that, and we keep rolling together. You know what I'm saying? So the, the church today, we've got to have devotion. We've got to understand that being discipled is imperative. You will stop moving if you ever stop being discipled. I, pr- I promise you. I've tried to do it on my own and cannot. Then number three is discipling. This is where evangelism comes in. This is where you are the one to fan the flame in others. Okay? So our threefold job as ambassadors, Paul says, of heaven and the earth is devotion, being discipled, and then being a disciple. Or excuse me, discipling others. Okay? All of this is wrapped in the grand blueprint of hope. That God is currently using us in the anointing of the Holy Spirit to bring his creation through Jesus back to originality. Okay, so Romans 8 says we've already experienced the first fruits of this. So let me ask you this question. This is just how my brain works. I was thinking, I just wrote all of it down. What did our salvation do to us? Or what did our salvation look like? If you're not saved in the room, we love you. You should, you should totally be born again. Okay, but... I know almost everybody in the room, so almost everybody in here is born again, if not everybody. When we were born again, what did our salvation look like? Let me explain, okay? So when you were born again, did you literally, this is the issue that in John 3, this is that Nicodemus had. He asked this question. When you were born again, did you become a baby who was reborn as another human being? Not a trick question. No, right? So your salvation did not involve God throwing you away and literally starting over. Amen? Right? If somebody did do that, come talk to me after because we can make some money off that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, That's a joke. That's a joke. That's a joke. Okay? Salvation salvation is the Greek word sozo. Most of you know this. Here's what this word means. It means to rescue from death. Amen. It means to, Lord, like, when did that ever become, like, you know what I mean? Rescue from death. Oh, that's cool. Huh? <laughs> you know what I mean? Have eternal life. We, we, so we read John 3, 16, for God's love of the world. So whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Bro, brother, that's, that's amazing. Huh? <laughs> okay. So it so, says, so, rescue from death. L- listen to what this means. Restore to health. (laughs) Salvation. Rescue from death. Restore to health or vitality. You could use there. Uh, To rescue, persevere, and save. Listen to this. This is all from the lexicon. Save. From sin and its effects. None of those have to do with throwing you away. You ready? Why then, when we hear the language that he longs to save, John 3, 17, creation, the cosmos, do we think he's talking about throwing it away? I'm not trying to trick you. I am trying to get you to think, though, because what we don't do in the South is think. Right? So, salvation... 
For God, let me, let, here we go, here we go, here we go, here we go, here we go. Yeah, prove it, brother. All right. John 3, 17, you ready? I have this conversation with myself all the time. I just jump ahead of, of stuff. John 3, 16, okay? I'm going to read this in the Passion Translation just because I got it right here, already marked. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his only son as a gift. So now whoever believes in him will never perish but experience everlasting life. Listen to this. God did not send his son into the world to judge and condemn the world, but to be its savior and rescue it, or that through him the world might be sozoed. So let's say this, okay? Through him the world might be rescued from death or decay, restored to health or vitality, and rescued, persevered, and saved from sin and its effects. Who? So, this is where we're going to go in Mark 1. I'm just trying to give you a lot of information before we get there. Answer your questions on the front end. Okay? So, when you're born again, when you're born again, you're not thrown away. Yahweh began the process of making you, the original you, a new creation. So, so let me use me. I'm more like Christ today than ever before. And I hope you are too. Okay? I'm more like Christ today than I've ever been in my entire life. However, physically, I'm the same Josh I was when I was lost. Just physically, right? So if you took a picture of me when I was lost and then take a picture of me today, it's the same person. Except the Lord at my salvation and your salvation began the restoration process of removing the sin issue so that I could be who I was originally designed to be, one with Christ and an image bearer of God. Unbelievable. I mean, I could get into so many rabbits, but I'm not going to. This is why I say evangelism is the easiest thing we could ever do, right? Because every person on planet Earth was knit together in their mother's womb by God. Hold up. Every person on planet Earth was knit together in their mother's womb by God. The Lord says it's God's will that no man should perish. He put eternity in the heart of every man. So when we're evangelizing, we're not trying to rescue someone who is evil into Christianity. What we're doing is we're trying to reach the good creation that has been veiled by evil so that we can bring out who they were originally knit together in their mother's womb to be. So, so evangelism's easy because I'm not trying to create something that's not there. I'm trying to pull out what's been there from the beginning. I'm not trying to plant something new. I'm watering the seed that never got watered. So, so it's, it's easy. So you walk around, and that, it makes it really difficult to hate somebody. It makes it really difficult to not want to evangelize. Because now I see all of the world around me not as this evil thing I don't want to touch. I see the world around me as image bearers that I actually need in the body of Christ that I've got to deal with the sin issue so that they can be who they were designed to be, which I also need. If you have a body... If you have a body, we've been using this language a lot because we have a lot of new people right now. And so every single new person who's come into the church has had a unique 
piece of either revelation or gifting or whatever that we were missing before. We didn't know we were missing it, but when they came in, it's like, man, we, like Mackenzie, sharing stuff on, I don't mean to point you out, sharing stuff on Tuesday nights that the Lord's been showing her, and I'm like, man, we needed that two years ago. You know what I'm saying? So we didn't know we were missing it, and yet we were missing it. So she's a part of the body that comes in. Let's say this. We were missing a finger. She comes in. The Lord attaches the finger. And now all of a sudden we can do things we could never do before because we didn't have the finger before. That's how the body works. So all the world around me, I don't see a bunch of lost evil people I don't need to touch, which is how we do. I see a bunch of body parts that I need in the body for us to go further than we've ever gone before. If we can go 10, feet, 10 miles an hour right now, what in the world could we do if we had multiple other pieces of the body come into the body and then us move in a vitality and in a way and direction and gifting like we never had before? Think about this. Everybody who is a great musician or a great singer, Celine Dion, like you, you say whoever, all of those people are, let me be clear, anointed to sing. They are. So you can, you can listen to, um, what song, uh, what movie were we watching the other day? What movie were we watching? Oh, we were watching um, uh, uh, Hamilton. Hamilton. Yeah, yeah, awesome, awesome. Y'all cheered more for Hamilton than Eternal Life, but that's okay. So <laughs> I, just, I just set you all right up right there. Like, Eternal Life, yeah, Hamilton. Woo! Ten people just gave online. Um, I'm just, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Actually, we might get sued for mentioning Hamilton. No, I'm just playing. But we're watching that movie, and I'm just going. And the songs just get stuck in your head. And they'll sing certain songs, and the moment will be right, and the lights will be right. And man, you'll like, you'll feel it, right? Or you'll hear like Moana. I, I mention this all the time. Like I know, like demigod and all that stuff. I know, um, but. Lord, help us. And some, some of y'all watch Harry Potter that's talking about us watching Moana. Um, and I'm not saying either, you know. But we watch Moana. And I, every single time, have to fight back tears when the grandma is singing to Moana, basically saying, like, uh, you know who you are. Like, in other words, like, I don't care what everybody else says, you know who you are. And like, I'm about to cry just talking about it, Lord. But I cry every time. Now, is that, a, is that a supernatural, heavenly song? No. But somebody who wrote that song, which I believe is the same Hamilton dude, by the way, but somebody who wrote that song is anointed to write songs. So if we could ever, instead of saying, like, hands off, if we could ever say, you know what you were designed for? Doing what you're doing, but doing it to establish the kingdom of Yahweh in the earth? talk about worship so where, where could we go in worship where could we go in creativity what if the ones who designed the iphone were born again where could we go in technology where you, you know what i'm saying see this is what i think about at night is that when new creation is established we're not just talking about having good church services which we will but we're talking about culture he used kingdom he did not use church service I'm about to read it. He used kingdom. Kingdom involves every aspect of culture, economy, politics, all of it. 
So what happens when this begins to seep into everything that we do and Wall Street and all this stuff and all of a sudden people are being born again and they're able to leverage the resources they've been given to go into a community that has nothing that once was overlooked but now with people who are born again they can take the resources Yahweh's given them and elevate a community that's been in poverty since the beginning of America to a place where now everybody is thriving in the kingdom. This is what I think about at night. Instead of the rich get richer, what if all the rich got born again and our country got sozoed? Whew, man. God is in the restoration business, not the throwing away business. I feel like I feel my Pentecostal roots coming up. That's right about when an organ would come in right there. God, God is not in the throwing away business. He's in the restoration business. Here we find the kingdom message. He wasn't moving us out. He was moving in. Those far from God weren't brought close to God. God came close to them. We said, we said that we need to rescue people far from God. Are they far from God spiritually? Sure. But are they literally far from God? Absolutely not. He's so close that with one yes, he's ready to embrace them. Was I far from God? Sure. Until I said yes. And it did not take him 10 years to get, for, get to me because he was far away. When I said yes, he was standing right there to wrap his arms around me and say, I give you back everything you lost. So people are not far from God. They are veiled from God. So today, we are, do you hear the hope in this? This is the kingdom. Today, we're going to look at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We're going to read Mark 1 and what he says his mission was. This, this has been burning, burning in me. And uh, so I am so excited to release it. Um, what time is it? I'm, where do I want to read this from? I'm going to read it in uh, the Passion Translation, and I might jump back. I was going to start in the NRSV and then go back and forth, but I just want to save us some time with some definitions that I won't have to necessarily um, hit if I read it from here. Okay, so Mark 1, I'm going to start at verse 9. And, uh, and also, Jesus spoke Aramaic, and so I like a translation that when Jesus, specifically when it talks about what Jesus said, brings in the Aramaic, since that's what he actually spoke. So um, most of our modern-day Bibles only use Greek, which isn't a bad thing. But um, anyway, Mark 1, I'm going to start at verse 9. Listen to this. One day, follow along with me too. One day, Jesus came from Gal- the Galilean village of Nazareth and had John immerse or baptize him in the Jordan River. The moment Jesus rose out of the water, John saw the heavenly realm split open and the Holy Spirit descend like a dove and rest upon him. At the same time, a voice spoke from heaven saying, You are my son, my cherished one, and my greatest delight is in you, or in you I am well pleased. Immediately after this, He was compelled by the Holy Spirit to go into the uninhabited desert region, the wilderness. He remained there in the wilderness for 40 days, 
enduring, um, I always pronounce that super weird, enduring, the ordeals of Satan's test. He encountered wild animals, but also angels who appeared and ministered to his needs. Let me just put, put a couple of notes just right here before we move on. So Jesus was 30 when his ministry started. Again, this is a lot of review, but we're going somewhere. He was 30 when his ministry started. Oftentimes people ask, what was he doing for 30 years? He was 30. The Son of God, think about this, the Son of God was on the earth, living, eating, doing stuff, without one person having a clue, the Son of God, except for Mary and a couple other relatives, that that's what they had. And I I would probably say, a lot of times, they probably looked at him and was like, are we sure? Because he's he's just a kid. Right? Um, So, so. Luke 2, Luke 2 gives us the only insight we have between Jesus' birth and then when he started his ministry. Luke 2. And all it says, he was in the temple. Uh, he was asking questions. He was responding. He was having conversations with some of the leaders. His parents lose him. They find him. They say, what in the world are you doing? I'm, of course, I'm paraphrasing. And he tells his parents this. This is what he says. Luke 2, he says, don't you know... It's necessary for me to be here in my father's house, consumed with him. So what was Jesus doing for 30 years until his ministry started? Being consumed with him. He spent 30 years being consumed with Yahweh before ever doing one act of ministry in any capacity. Why? Because he knew image-bearing was the only way to do anything in God. Specifically, establish his kingdom built on the foundation of his image. So he then gets baptized, which is symbolic of dying to the natural order to operate in resurrection, or you could say new creation power, by the Holy Spirit. So he gets baptized before he starts his ministry. He then hears beloved identity, okay? You are my son and who I am well pleased, announced over him, which would become the way in which he endured the 40 days in the wilderness of testing. So just just check this out, okay? This is the order of how he got into his ministry. It's being consumed by God before, leading up to this narrative, but picking it up in Mark 1. It's his baptism, So dying to the natural order, natural way of doing things. Baptism, beloved identity, and then the wilderness for 40 days. Remember, 40 is the number of a shift in age. So, dying to the natural led to inheriting the fullness of beloved identity which led to a shift in age, more specifically into the age of the kingdom invading earth through God himself invading flesh through Jesus. Are y'all with me? I know this is a lot. Y'all stay awake, stay with me. (laughs) Okay, baptism, beloved identity, and a change in age. A lot of us want to jump straight to the ministry thing. If Jesus Christ himself went through this, I would dare say most of us, all of us, 
have to go through a season of being consumed by God, of dying to the natural way of doing things, of fully embracing beloved identity and who we are, and then going through this wilderness season This 40 days where the shift in age happens. He goes into the wilderness and faces every kind of testing. That's what happens in the wilderness. Every kind of testing. In fact, one of the ways he he was tested was the devil coming to him saying, if you'll bow down before me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. What was Jesus there for? All the kingdoms of the earth. So he could have gotten out of the cross. He could have gotten out of everything in that moment by just bowing down to the enemy and then taking the keys to all the kingdoms of the earth. So we read this stuff, we don't think. However, of course, he did not. And what he was doing in the wilderness was he was shifting us from an age of operating by the natural order. Because remember, he was baptized and then he heard beloved identity before this. So he died to the natural. Dying to the natural gave him the grace to inherit beloved identity. You are my son in who I am well pleased, which gave him the capability to go into the wilderness, face everything of the natural order to shift us himself first into a new age. Okay. I, see, I think this stuff is cool. That's just me. Uh, he calls some disciples. I'm going to jump ahead, though, to verse 21. 21. Okay. Then Jesus, then Jesus and his disciples, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Let me back up. Let me back up, back up, back up, back up. Let me get verse 14 through 16 real quick and then we'll jump to 21 because this is the whole message. I just about skipped over the whole piece of the message. He comes out of the wilderness, shift in age. Now listen to this. You want to know what Jesus was here for? He's about to tell you. Later on, after John the the baptizer was arrested, Jesus went back into the region of Galilee and preached the wonderful gospel of God's kingdom realm. Gospel in the Greek, 100% of the time, could be, and I believe is more accurately translated, good news. Okay? So anytime you see gospel in the New Testament, you can translate that good news, synonymous. That's actually the more accurate translation. Some of your Bibles might have that. Um preached the wonderful gospel or the good news of God's kingdom. His message was this. You ready? His message was this. His message was this. First words of Jesus we get in Mark. At last, the fulfillment of the age or time has come. At last, the fulfillment of the age has come. It is time for the realm of God's kingdom to be experienced in its fullness. Turn your lives back to God and put your trust in the hope-filled gospel or the good news. Let me read this in the NRSV. This is what most of your Bibles um, has in it. Verse 14, Mark 1, says this. Jesus' message, okay? The good news of God and saying, The time, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God has come close. If you're reading, I believe in the New King James, it probably says the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. I'm going to break this down, and then I'm going to jump ahead, and we're going to end on 1130. Perfect. 
on a really, uh, really what, what I came here to, to teach you guys. But let me, let me just break this down for one second. For those of you that don't like deep theology, hang in there with me for the next couple minutes, okay? I want to break down the Greek words in the original text just so you know what he's saying, okay? So, when he says the fulfillment of time or the fulfillment of the age is here, it's the word, the fulfillment, that word is pleroa, pleroa in the Greek. And it, um, it means I fill up to complete, to accomplish, to carry out specifically of prophecies and other statements which are totally confirmed by reality. So when he said the fulfillment of time or the, the time is fulfilled or the fulfillment of the ages here, what he's saying is every single thing your ancestors looked ahead toward and for and prophesied over, I am fulfilling right now before your eyes. That's literally what he's saying. They would have known, especially the Jews, they would have known all that the Old Testament Isaiah, in particular, would have said about the coming Messiah. They would have known. So for this man, who, by the way, up till this point in Mark, has not done any miracles. You could trace it back in the other Gospels and say maybe he did before this. But I would say, I would say, as much as I've, as I've uh, tracked down the timeline of everything, he preached this, Mark's writing this, before any miracle is ever done. Okay, so before Jesus does a miracle, this man in the power of the Holy Spirit, having just come out of the wilderness, having shifted in age for himself, has now come and said, everything you know about God and what he plans to do to bring you back into your original design, I am here to fulfill. And if you were listening to this message, can you imagine that after four Hundred years of silence from the Old Testament, there is a man standing in front of you say, saying, the fulfillment of every promise is right in front of your eyes. I've come to do it. Uh, that, that, I couldn't get away from that this week. The word kingdom in the Greek is the word basilie and means kingship, sovereignty, authority and rule of God specifically in the world and in the hearts of men. That's what the Greek means. Out of the kingship, sovereignty, authority, and rule in the world and in the hearts of men. When he says repent, it's the Greek word metanoia and means to change your mind, so to change your thinking, and to change the will that you follow. So God's will versus your, your will. Some people say this as, as turning and going in another direction. That's what that changing in will means. So repent, metanoia, means to change your thinking and to change the will that you follow. Okay? When he says believe, that means to put your trust in, that Greek word. And gospel means good news. So let me break this down by definition. I'm not saying this is a new translation. I'm just going to take all the definitions of the Greek and just throw them together into one statement. This is what they would have heard. When they heard Jesus proclaim this message, this is what they would have ingested. Okay? 
Everything your ancestors looked forward to is being fulfilled before your eyes. How? By the kingship, sovereignty, authority, and rule of God being brought into the world. In order to be a part of this new age and established kingdom, you will have to change how you think and follow the will of God in me and trust in this good news. That's literally what Jesus is saying. Now, now, show me in that statement where he tells them that the hope of their gospel is that they're escaping one day. I mean, I don't see it. It's not in there. Why? Because he did not come to preach the message of let's escape because the devil's too evil. He came preaching the message saying the king is here. There had been many who claimed to be the Messiah before, if you look throughout history. But as we're about to see, Jesus had an authority when he spoke that caused the Jews to see a glimmer of hope that God had not forgotten them, even through 400 years of silence. And through this man, Jesus was about to restore them to their former glory and their former relationship with Yahweh. Think about this message. All other religions were and are about where you go when you die and leave the earth. Every other religion. Jesus came with the announcement that God's space was now invading and transforming the earth. And then the Lord spoke this to me. Just think about this. Only the Creator has the authority to bring what he created back to originality. If I build, I use this all the time because Veda, we have blocks um, and magnetiles. If I build some, a Lego tower and some great person comes by and kicks it over, you know? Now, now there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people who can get it real close to where it was before. But the only one who knows every detail of how it was made before was the one who made it, right? So every religion, because none of them created anything, is all based on you getting out because they have no authority to fix where you are because they didn't create it. Jesus comes. Man, do, you, do y'all feel that? Jesus comes... Let me, give, let me give you a lot of theology. If you go to Proverbs 8, it talks about wisdom. So he's talking about Jesus. And it says Jesus was there when God created everything as the master artisan. What does artisan mean? It means it's the one who took the pen to paper. That's what artisan means. So most scholars will teach that when God created the globe, God was the creative mind behind the creation but Jesus Christ was actually the one that said, let there be. Which is why John says, in the beginning was the Word. Oh, man. And the Word was with God. The Word was God. And then the Word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. Why tabernacled? That's the Greek word. It's not dwelt. I mean, that, that could work too, but it's tabernacled. Because he's pointing back to the wilderness 
in the tabernacle where Yahweh was enthroned. Now it's not in a holy of holies. Now Yahweh has come in the flesh. So, so think. So that's why Jesus' message blew away all the other Greek goddesses and gods and religions that were around them because all of them were focused on the bliss that you might get one day when you die and leave. Jesus came with the message that if I set it right, I'm going to bring it back to where I set it. God's kingdom is here. Which is why Paul, which is why Paul said that his hope, his hope, he longs to be with Jesus, absolutely. But his hope is resurrection. Because there's only one that can bring you back to life. And it ain't Buddha, and it ain't Muhammad, and it ain't whatever else people believe. It's Yahweh, the one that breathed into your nostrils in the first place. What does this mean for us? It means that we are not here just to muddle through life looking forward to dying. So we can finally taste true freedom. It means that Yahweh is passionately fascinated with you here and now and longs for you and I to experience his word and his kingdom here. That's why I say we have hope. And let me clear, let me clear a couple of things up after last week. If you weren't here last week, go back and listen. Um, before I read the rest of Mark, and then we'll wrap it up. In fact, Daniel, you want to go ahead and jump up here? Just to let y'all think we're ending. <laughs> I'm smart, you know. Um, it's amazing. People just wake up when they hit the keys because it's like, man, we're getting out of here. It's a, that's the same thing that put the church in thinking that we're getting out of here. Same thing. I'm just kidding. But, just kidding. but let me just be clear because I did have questions after last week. So I just want to clear up some stuff, clear up some stuff. There is a devil, just to clear that up. There is one. There is a devil. Um, I just don't think he has any power. But they're over believers, over believers, over believers, okay? But there is. And, and we are tempted, okay? I'm not saying that either. But I'm saying if you are tempted and you operate within that temptation, you gave the temptation power. The temptation did not give power to do anything, right? So that's what I mean when I say the devil has lost all authority he cannot force you to do anything. You can choose to do whatever you want. Right? And when I, when, I say, when I talk about the kingdom, I'm also not simultaneously throwing away heaven. That's, that's not what I'm doing at all. Heaven's going to be unbelievable. If you die right now and you're saved, you're going to heaven. Okay? So that's not what I'm doing either. I'm just saying, Jesus did not come with an escape plan. He came with a kingdom blueprint that he was going to establish in the earth. He came with restoration in mind. Part of that restoration might be you being with Jesus into the fulfillment of all that has to be accomplished. But the ultimate goal, the ultimate idea is you bodily resurrected in new heaven, new earth, reigning with Christ for all of eternity. That's the hope of our salvation. That's why I say we can preach on heaven all we want and we won't be wrong. But we're going to miss out on the co-laboring peace that we're actually called to help bring new creation into the globe. So if I sit around picking my nose waiting for heaven, I'm going to do nothing in the earth and I still might make it to heaven. Or I could say, if I die and be with Jesus, great. Great. 
But while I'm here, you better believe I am not leaving this place looking the same way it was when I was born into it. That's why I say all the time, why did Jesus save us and then leave us here? That makes no sense. Makes no sense. If he saved you, why didn't he just rapture you, if you want to say that, for all my, my Pentecostal buddies? If, if he, if he, right, right? If he saved you, why didn't he just take you? Maybe he left you for a reason. So we're sitting around, we're sitting around, we think we're at, our, at the jobs we're at because we just got to, you know, pay the bills and we think we're doing, going to church just because that's what we need to do because we're Christians and we're going to serve because as a Christian, I should probably do that. And like, we do all this stuff, not understanding that everything you put your hand to is a touch point of new creation. So you're at the job that you're at. I don't care how miserable you are. In fact, I would say the Lord probably loves your boss enough that the worse the boss, the more likely a Christian's going to be put in that situation. People sit up, man, man, I hate my boss. Congratulations. Like, Josh, that's easy for you to say. You are the boss. Yeah. But I've been under a lot of bosses that I did not like or did not agree with. And I'm not talking about in church world, other outside the church world, right? And looking back now, I wish I had made a difference. If somebody yells at you and you feel like you don't deserve it, you could yell back. Or you could say, treat others as you'd like to be treated. We teach that to kids and then we think it's nothing when we get grown up. If we would just do that, we'd get everything else. Let, let me bless you today. Treat others as you would like to be treated. If we do that, boom, the whole globe is transformed. So we got a bunch of people walking around that know everything about the kingdom, yet they treat their brother like junk. Like I, I don't care what you know about the kingdom. If you don't treat people like Jesus would have treated them, which is how you want to be treated, then it doesn't matter what you know. Go back to Paul. 1 Corinthians 13. All right, I got to get where I'm going. This is, this is all just the intro. This is the intro. <laughs> But the ending's short. The ending's short. The ending's short. I got 15 minutes, y'all. Actually, no, I don't. I got all the time I want. All right. Let me just read through this, and then I'm going to get to verse um, 40. Verse 40 is where we're going to end up in a minute, and I'm gonna just, there's a couple of verses I want to hit, and we'll be done. So 21, I'm just read through this. Jesus and his disciples went to Capernaum. He immediately started teaching on the Sabbath day in the synagogue. People were awestruck and overwhelmed by his teaching because he taught in a way that demonstrated God's authority, which was unlike the religious scholars. I won't chase anything. I'll just tell you, put a little note right there. They, they weren't shocked and overwhelmed because he was teaching great things. They were shocked because what was behind his words was unlike anything they had ever heard in the synagogue. Suddenly, during the meeting, a demon-possessed man screamed out. Okay? This is the demon. Hey, leave us alone, Jesus the victorious. I know who you are. You're God's holy one, and you have come to destroy us. Most of your Bibles have a, has a, have a question mark right there that says, Have you come to destroy us? Question mark. In zero of the original Greek text, is there a question mark? None of them. That's all added later. 
It's not in any of the original. That right there in the Greek is a definitive statement, not a question. Either way, it's the same. But they weren't saying, hey, Jesus, have you come to hurt us? They were saying, man, son of God's here. We're done. That's what they were saying. So, who have come to destroy us? Jesus rebuked him, saying, silenced. You are bound. That word is muzzled. Come out of him. The man's body shook violently in spasms, and the demon hurled him to the floor until it finally came with a deafening shriek. The crowd was awestruck and unable to stop saying among themselves, What is this new teaching that comes with such authority? With merely a word, the command, he commands demons to come out, and they obey him. Right? So, Josh, how do you feel about spiritual warfare? We definitely do spiritual warfare. There's another question, people, so you don't believe about spiritual warfare. No, I believe we do spiritual warfare. How do I believe we do spiritual warfare? What is this new teaching that comes with such authority? With merely a word, he commands demons to come out and they obey him. That's how you do spiritual warfare right there. He didn't punch them and he didn't throw a sword. He spoke. So the reports about Jesus spread like wildfire throughout every community in the region of Galilee. Now, as soon as they left the meeting, they went straight to Simon and Andrew's house along with Jacob and John, that's James, but the original is Jacob. Simon's mother-in-law was bedridden, sick with a high fever, so the first thing they did was to tell Jesus about her. He walked up to her bedside, gently took her hand and raised her up. Her fever disappeared and she began to serve them. Later in the day, just after the Sabbath, I'm almost done, at sunset, the people kept bringing to Jesus all who were sick and tormented by demons until the whole village was crowded around the house. Jesus cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, but he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew who he really was. Let me just put this note about the demon in the synagogue real quick. This man would have been in the synagogue before, so this wasn't his first time in the synagogue which means the demon was comfortable with the teaching of all the other religious teachers until Jesus shows up and he begins teaching from the same scripture the other teachers were teaching from, but this time it was the word made flesh that dwelt among them speaking. And as he begins to speak this, the demon says, we can't be here with that. I, man, how far do we go? I, I, wonder how, I wonder how many, I wonder how many demons sit around in our churches today comfortable let y'all take that home I'm see, I'm, how are we going to change the world if we can't change the people in our churches you know what I'm saying so, I mean I could, I could either let you be comfortable or I could help you get back to how you were designed this man was not designed to be controlled by a demon and the only thing that helped him get back to his design was a man who was preaching the message, the kingdom is here. And if my kingdom's here, that kingdom can no longer be here. Just after the Sabbath, Jesus healed all these people 
cast out all these demons. He wouldn't let them speak because they knew who he really was. The next morning, Jesus got up long before daylight, left the house while it was dark, and made his way to a secluded place to give himself to prayer. That was the wilderness. You could say he went to the secret place, a hidden place. Later, Simon and his friends searched for him, and when they finally tracked him down, they told him, listen to this, everyone is looking for you. They want you. So because of what Jesus did the day before, his fame was exploding. They come and say, Jesus, all these people are wanting you. Let's go. Let's go. Jesus replied, we have to go. That word is leave. We have to leave. Go on to the surrounding villages so that I can give my message to the people there for that is my my mission. So he went throughout the region of Galilee, preaching in the Jewish synagogues and casting out demons, casting out demons. His message of the kingdom simultaneously with casting out demons was all part of the mission. The kingdom is here. What was he doing? What was he doing? He was preaching a new kingdom was here. And while he was preaching, the new kingdom was here. He was removing the old kingdom, which is why he's preaching that message and casting out demons at the same time. He's saying one kingdom's here. Therefore, another kingdom's got to go. Man, this is so good. This is so good. Before I get to verse 40, let me point this out. He made the decision to leave where he was after being in the secret place. I believe the secret place kept Jesus anchored in his purpose. As his fame grew, he never changed his mission. A lot of people right there will say, why didn't Jesus heal everybody? I would argue that he did. Watch this. Because the announcement of the kingdom, which brings sozo, is the seed which gives birth to not just healing. It gives birth to an entire new way of life. So what was he saying? He said, I preach the kingdom there. That's going to grow until all those people receive what they long for. But I've got to go take this seed everywhere else too. So when his fame grew, he could have said, let's stay right here and become the biggest mission the world has ever seen and start a church and get a nonprofit 501c3 number. He could have said that because his fame grew. But he said, hey, that's awesome. Those people have received the seed. I've got to go everywhere else. He never changed his mission. Why? Because he was in the secret place to stay anchored into why he was there, which is ultimately to be the son of God, the beloved son. And then right after that, to announce God's kingdom is here. Your secret place will anchor you in where you need to be. And the moment you stop being in the secret place will be the moment you start shooting arrows at a bunch of random things that you were never designed to shoot at. So let me get to verse verse 40. Let me get to verse 40. There's so much in this. I'll probably spend the next five weeks on Mark 1. On one occasion, I want you to listen to this. I'm about to cry like a baby, so y'all just hang with me. On one occasion, a leper came and threw himself down in front of Jesus. 
pleading for his healing, saying, you have the power to heal me right now if only you really want to. Being deeply moved with tender compassion. If your Bible says anger, that word anger does not denote he was angry at the man. It denotes he was angry at the leprosy, okay? But that word should be compassion or uh, tenderness. He was being deeply moved with tender compassion. Jesus reached out and you're gonna need to circle this and remember this. Jesus reached out and touched the skin of the leper and told him, of course I wanna heal you. So now be cleansed. Instantly, the leprous sores completely disappeared and his skin became smooth. Jesus sent him away with a very stern warning saying, don't say anything to anyone about what just happened, but go find a priest and show him that you've been healed. Then bring the offering that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a living testimony to everyone. But no sooner... Did the man leave that he began to proclaim his healing publicly and spread the story everywhere of his healing? Jesus' growing fame prevented him from entering the villages openly, which forced him to remain in, isolation, in isolated places. Jesus' fame prevented him from entering the village. I feel like we should get that verse right there plastered on every social media outlet we could possibly. His growing fame prevented him from going out, so he remained in isolation. If Jesus made this about something other than himself, we better make sure this is about something other than ourselves. But, but let me point this out. A leper was a person with a highly contagious skin disease who was deemed ritually impure and thus banished from the community. That's Leviticus 13 and 14, if you want to go back. Leviticus 13 and 14. Someone with leprosy wasn't just a sick person walking around. They were literally banished from the entire community. This man, this man was an outcast and would have spent most of his life, the entirety of his sickness, being rejected by everyone, especially the religious leaders adhering to the law. You with me? Anyone who touched him would have instantly caught his sickness. That's how contagious it was. So he comes to Jesus, possibly as his last hope, thinking, if this is the Son of God, maybe I can convince him to give me hope and relief. His family would have rejected him. Society would have rejected him. He would have been poor and homeless due to inability to work. He was literally hopeless. You're about to see what the kingdom looks like.
threw himself down in front of Jesus, pleading, pleading for his healing. You have the power to heal me right now. But only if you want to. Why was he saying that? Because his entire life, his entire life, everybody had rejected him, specifically the church. Following Leviticus 13 and 14, he was rejected. And he finds the Son of God, falls down and says, I know you can heal me. No doubt in my mind. Where my doubt comes in is whether or not you actually want to. a lot of people today watching this or in the room you have no doubt no doubt if God can heal you where your doubt starts coming in is when you start questioning if he really wants to Jesus being deeply moved with tender compassion reached out and touched the skin of the leper and told him of course I want you to be healed. Okay? Think. Jesus touches him. Jesus could have spoke from a distance so that he didn't catch the leprosy. This is Jesus. In fact, there's a moment with the Roman centurion. He spoke a word and the, and the kid was healed. So he, he could have just said, all right, stay there. Be healed. The man be healed and then go touch him. But remember, his announcement wasn't avoiding darkness. His announcement was the kingdom is here to do away with darkness. That was his message. So he goes and, oh man. I don't know if y'all are feeling this, but this man, only I know you can heal me only if you want to. And then Jesus touches him. For the first time in possibly his entire life, but definitely since he caught leprosy. Possibly had it his whole life. We don't know. For the first time, someone touches him. Do do y'all see this? He spent his whole life with people rejecting him, telling him to stay away. And then the Son of God shows up and lays his hand on him. He wasn't just wanting to heal his disease. He wanted to heal his heart. After spending much of his life being rejected and avoided, Jesus touches him, warning, warning him to go and give the um, offering of Moses that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to everyone. Why did he give this warning? Because that offering would have restored him to his original position in society and as far as relationships go. The offering would have restored him in society. So Jesus touches him, instantly heals him, tells the man to go give the offering you need to give, and then the next moment, right after the offering's giving, Given the man is walking around in the world as just another man. Which for us seems like, oh, well, it's whatever. 
For this man who had spent his whole life being rejected, it was the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's what the kingdom looks like. It looks like going to people in our world that don't have a clue that there is a Yahweh creator that longs to infect their life, not with a sickness, but with hope until it permeates the entire being of them until they become what they were designed to be, which is new creation, which is originality, which is a touch on the people that people have rejected their whole life. Some people are walking through circumstances right now that you feel like the Lord is sitting on a throne saying, I know I can heal you, I just don't want to. Because you see yourself as not good enough. You see yourself as not worthy. You see yourself as Him not caring about you. And ultimately you think He's really not that good because of what you've been walking through. And I'm I'm here today to tell you, I believe Jesus wants to touch some people. And I am not talking about, a cra- I mean, if it's a crazy experience, it's a crazy experience. But what I'm specifically talking about is I believe Jesus wants to do what you feel like no one's done for you in at least a long time, maybe your whole life. A lot of people struggle with seeing God as father because they had a really bad father growing up. A lot of people struggle with the idea of Jesus as the groom because you've never known what it's like to have a good groom. And what he wants to do is not avoid that piece of you. What he wants to do is invade that piece of you until every single part of you is fully convinced that he is who he says he is and I am who he says I am. I, I cried, I read this and cried and cried and cried and cried thinking about this man who people had avoided his whole life and then the son of God The holy of holies, never sinned, complete, pure, and holiness in a man walks up. If anybody should have avoided touching the uncleanliness of a man, it was Jesus. Jesus was completely clean. Why would he touch somebody who was unclean unless he believed that his cleanliness could not be affected by anything unclean? Hear hear this, hear this. What does it mean when you have been sozoed? It means now you have been persevered from the effects of sin. The things that used to be your identity can no longer be your identity even if they try. Jesus was fully convinced that he wasn't going to catch leprosy, that the leprous man was going to catch new creation. Fully convinced. And I, I wept and wept and wept and wept and wept, thinking about what had to happen in this man when he felt somebody touch him. We take it for granted. COVID-19 comes and people can't hug each other anymore. I mean, most of us hug each other still, but can't. And like, I haven't, I haven't hugged my family since February. And I promise you, I will never take that for granted again. You know, we take stuff for granted until it's taken away from us and we realize how important it is. I haven't hugged my dad or my mom since February. There's been a lot of moments over the past few months that um, 
And that's what I needed. So I know what it feels like to be in a place where you just need a touch. And Jesus show up and just lay his hand. Say, it's okay. People have avoided you your whole life. But it's okay. I want to. It's literally what he says. Of course I want to heal you. We don't need a kingdom. We don't need the kingdom of the world to get better. We need the kingdom of God to so invade our world that it doesn't just heal our wounds, it restores our hearts. I'm going to say this one more time. If I can stop crying. We don't need the kingdom of the world, as in darkness, to get better primarily. We need the kingdom of God to so invade that it doesn't just heal the darkness, it restores our hearts. This is what the kingdom announcement of Jesus means today. We have hope. Jesus did not tell the man, enjoy your suffering and be, and be good so you can get away from here one day. He restored the man to originality by way of encounter and proximity. And think about this real quick. This is my last note. Do you remember the original announcement of Jesus? He says, the kingdom of heaven, New King James, I believe, says, at hand, is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's come close. He goes to the leprous man who everybody had avoided. And what does he do? He lays his hand on him. Proximity, proximity, the kingdom being at hand is what gave birth to what this man ultimately needed, which was not just healing of leprosy. It was healing from the hurt that all those years of being rejected had allowed himself to get into. We, we don't just need healing. We don't just need coronavirus healed. We do need that. We don't just need that. We need hearts. We need heart transplants is what we need in America. And in this room, we, we need people who have grown up fatherless to understand what it means to have a father. We need people who grew up without a groom to show them what it means to have Jesus as a bridegroom to allow themselves to see what it means to have a bridegroom that is Jesus Christ, Son of God. We need new hearts in America. I believe, I believe. This is why us settling for just a bunch of repeated prayers is so dangerous. And people, people get mad at me saying this all the time. But I'm telling that's why this is dangerous. It's because that is the equivalent to Jesus saying, stay over there. Let me throw some words at you and you'll be healed. That's what that is. Just repeat a prayer. Repeating prayers is dangerous because the world does not need an escape plan. The world needs a touch from the king. Close and accessible is the cry of creation. Close and accessible is the cry of creation. I'm telling you today, we can give the world a great escape plan and it would cost us nothing. 
Or we could give the world what the world actually needs, which is transformation power coming from the sons and daughters of God who have been manifested. How have we been manifested? Because we were saved. We taste right now the first fruits of what it's going to be when we are fully resurrected. Why are we tasting the first fruits of it now rather than waiting until we're resurrected? We don't taste the fullness of it now, okay? But we're tasting a first fruit of it now so that we can know what the fullness is going to bring. David said, taste and see. Why? Because if you get a taste, you'll want the whole drink. That's what we do with Veda. There's something that she doesn't necessarily know if, it, if she should be drinking it or not. We'll say, just taste it with, with a kid. It could be food, it could be drink. Just taste it. Because we know once she tastes it, and nine times out of ten, macaroni and cheese, she didn't want to eat it. Like, just taste it. She got a taste, and she was like, all right, fill me up. You, you know what I mean? That's what they, taste and see the Lord is good. You don't even have to drink the whole thing. If you get a taste, you'll be convinced he's good. I'm going to pray, but I, I feel specifically today, I feel specifically today to pray over those, because th this, is, this is huge stuff. But to pray over those who need a touch from King. Who need a touch from King Jesus. Who need to see the Word made flesh come to you in His full, vast, holy array. And lay His hand on you and say, I want to. Abba, I pray right now that you would allow that to begin to happen. That King Jesus would begin to reign in and through not just our church, but in our communities and in our city and, and not just in a bunch of great services, which I believe we are having those and will continue to have those. But I want, I want us to be the carriers of what causes us to have great services which is not a great lineup of music and great speakers. It's the Holy Spirit being shed, the love of God, as I've heard it say recently, being shed abroad in the hearts of man. It's the candle in the darkness when the power goes out. And I sense that there's a lot of people that the power has gone out. And it just feels like darkness. It feels like you've been rejected. And the cry of your heart is not questioning whether or not God's actually going to set you free or heal you or deliver you. That's not the cry of your heart. You know he can. The cry of your heart is will he? It's not a question of can he. It's a question of will he? I know you can heal me. But only if you want to. I understand if you don't want to. I understand if you don't want to come near me because nobody else ever has before. And then he feels a hand lay on his shoulder. And the first thing he hears is, I do want to. Over the brokenness right now, whether it be people watching this or people in the room, brokenness, brokenness. And it may not be in the form of, of something awful. It may just be in the form of you don't know what God is doing in your life right now. It could be anything. But the brokenness in the place of the heart 
that questions, not can he, but that really struggles with the idea of will he. And Lord, I pray that this kingdom message, that this kingdom reality, that the kingship of Yahweh, that you would begin to bring that kingship into our lives first, our church second, our families, and then our world into the cosmos. All of creation is yearning for the manifestation of the sons and daughters, the weos, the fully mature sons of God. Yahweh, I love you. I thank you in the moments where I question if you would, that you emphatically, emphatically convince me that you will. I thank you for the healing that's coming. I thank you for the breakthrough that's coming. I thank you for the restoration that's coming. I thank you for the newness that is coming, the freshness. Behold, I do a new thing, it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Some of your streams, excuse me, some of your wildernesses and your wastelands are about to produce streams. I hear the Lord saying that. Some of your deserts are about to give birth to streams flowing through them. And where streams flow, vegetation begins to grow. And where vegetation begins to grow, animals begin to come and rest in the land. And it gives way, all because of a stream, it gives way to what was once a wasteland becoming a lush area, let's say a garden of bliss. So I just believe that. I just, I speak that over your lives, that wherever there is desert right now, that Yahweh is in the process of bringing springs. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for this family. I wouldn't trade these people for the world. So I thank you for this group of people. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.